say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ghost in the Valley podcast. I'm your host, Al Cooley. Today we have author Betsy Kulakowski. She is the author of the Veritas Codex series. It's a trilogy of paranormal thrillers. Betsy is also a federal trained investigator. She has a degree in emergency management. She's worked for KEBC Radio in Oklahoma City. We'll be right back with my interview with Betsy Kulakowski right after these brief messages. Hey guys, this is Vanessa. My podcast is Life Paranormal with me. Listen as I serve you all things spirit, paranormal, and unexplained. Join me every other Saturday as my guest hosts and I recount our own experiences that will perplex and utterly terrify you. Life Paranormal with V is available on all major platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Join the Lifer fam by following me on Twitter at Paranormal. Follow, like, subscribe, and hit that notification button so you can always catch a ride on this spooky vibe. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Well, today we have a fantastic author, Betsy Kulikowski from Oklahoma. Welcome, Betsy. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. I see that you are also a federally trained 
investigator? I started my career um, at the tender age of 18 at the Oklahoma Department of Labor, uh, working as a temporary uh, clerk typist doing asbestos abatement licenses. Uh, I went on to become an asbestos inspector and later went to work for the OSHA consultation division and eventually ended up doing workplace enforcement in the public sector. So one of the classes that they sent me to was uh, the OSHA Training Institute in Chicago has an accident investigation course. And I also was trained to do um, PSM inspections, which is like refineries and factories that use chemicals. And so I have been trained to be an investigator and I found it's a skill I use quite a bit in my writing. So it's been very handy for me. Yeah, OSHA. Uh, I worked 45 years, my prior job uh, in a steel mill. We kind of cringed every time OSHA came in. <laughs> yeah, and I can see why. I actually worked in a program that was called OSHA Consultation, and it was a, a service to help businesses uh, avoid penalties and make sure that the workplace was safe. And it was kind of the, the, the guys in the white hats. We were the good guys. You had to invite us to come in. We were there to help you, and you didn't get turned over to federal OSHA. So uh, I did a lot of inspections. I did over 1,000 inspections in my career. I spent 28 years at the state labor department before I moved into, I was about 26 years before I moved into enforcement for the public sector. So I, I did inspections on uh, police officers, firefighters, uh, city, county, state, and other government entities as an enforcement inspector. You probably saved a lot of lives too. I do know that, I mean, we complain about OSHA and the safety violations and regulations, you know, but it's all for the good. I mean, uh, yeah. so what you do is, uh, you know, safety for not number one. The company I work for is always um, a very safety uh, conscious, you know, and uh, you know, most companies will do the right thing. They just needed to know what to do because they're the, you know, the book of rules is, you know, huge. So, um, you know, you just need somebody there to kind of hold your hand and walk you through it and help you do it right. So that's what I, I enjoyed it because I got to see how things were made. And, you know, I'd been to steel mills, I've been to factories, mm-hmm. I've been to manufacturing facilities, you know, the little Plastic honey bears are made here, uh, blue jeans, candy, all the fun stuff. Let my listeners know that we are going to get into the uh, to, into the books and the paranormal thrillers. You know, I think it's important to get some background on on my guests that come on. You know, see where you come from and uh, yeah. how you got to where you're at in, to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely. Get, but before we get into that, uh, you also have a degree in emergency management. Yes, that was something that kind of came into um, my career. Uh, you know, I always said I got into safety by accident. It wasn't the career I chose. It was the career that chose me. So I uh, I was working uh, in downtown, well, fairly close to downtown Oklahoma City the day the Murrah bombing occurred. Um, within probably 48 hours, we were part of the team that were sent downtown to inspect the buildings for asbestos damage. So that was my first foray into what it looked like to be part of emergency management. Um, A few years later, we were called to go to the World Trade Center and later to Hurricane Katrina. So uh, we never thought of ourselves as first responders. We were the third responders that went in. And our job was to go and ensure the workers doing the cleanup were protected. So we did a lot of interventions. We would stop and talk to people about unsafe conditions, you know, identify the hazards and, and find solutions to help them correct it. We didn't go in with that enforcement baton. We went in there, you know, with the carrots and here's here's some solutions. How can we help? So that was something that became part of my career. And and I used it here also in Oklahoma after some of the big tornadoes that we've had. So I had an opportunity to serve on several of OSHA's disaster response teams and then some of our response teams here at home. So my degree in emergency management was kind of after the fact. It's just I had an opportunity to fall in my lap. I got a scholarship. Um, and I already had quite a bit of college behind me, but I didn't have a degree. So when I found that opportunity and, and, the, and the money was there, I jumped on it. So it took me about a year and a half to finish that emergency management degree. And uh, I've never regretted it because it was a fantastic opportunity. Some pretty important uh, uh, investigations you were on. I mean, Oklahoma City bombings and the, uh, well, the World Trade Center. I mean, <clears throat> my wife and I were down in New Orleans right after uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say right after, maybe two years after uh, mm-hmm. Katrina went through and uh, it was still devastated. I mean, when, when we went through it, that was two years later. So I can imagine just what it was like, uh, my God, you know, from the, mm-hmm. you know, hit yeah, with one was, hurricane and you hit back to back with another one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was part of the second team deployed. We were the, actually the first team to go into New Orleans after the army Corps of engineers declared it dewatered, which basically meant it was dry. So we went in and our first assignment was to inspect Charity Hospital, which was the oldest public hospital in North America. It's built in 1736 and they've just been adding on to it ever since. 27 stories, a couple of city blocks, and we had no lights, no electricity, no 
elevator, no air conditioning. It was 107 degrees in October. And uh, we had to walk every inch of that building looking for hazards so that the crews going in to do the cleanup knew what to expect and had the, pr- the correct um, protective equipment. And we did it all with respirators, Tyvek suits, knee high rubber boots. And I could probably tell some ghost stories from those inspections because that was a pretty creepy place. Um, and that was probably one of the first things we did when we got down there. And then we started doing landfill surveys. There had been a fatality at a landfill just before we got there. So we started doing landfill surveys. Uh, and then we just kind of spread out from there. We actually ended up in Plaquemines Parish, which was one of the hardest hit areas. I mean, buildings were washed off their foundations. Graves were washed up. Some pretty creepy, scary stuff. But everybody there was just wonderful. They were thankful to have, you know, somebody coming in to help and doing anything that we could to help protect the workers. Um, so it was a very rewarding opportunity. I see that you run a nonprofit organization. What, what mm-hmm. would that be? Uh, I work for the Oklahoma Safety Council here in Oklahoma. We're a chapter of the National Safety Council, and we do about um, 30,000 training units a year. So workers come in for classes. We do computer-based classes, and then we also teach classroom courses. So I teach like OSHA record keeping. You know, everybody loves record keeping, but it's actually one of my favorite subjects to teach. And uh, I teach safety and health management systems and transportation safety. And, um, you know, we just have a, a long list of classes that we offer, probably thousands of classes a person could take from our facility. And besides all that, I see that you also enjoy hiking in the mountains. I do. You you like camping, Mm -hmm. drinking your coffee by the water. I do. That's one of my favorite things in life is to drink a cup of coffee by the water. (laughs) We actually just got back from a trip in the Pacific Northwest. I have a friend that lives up in Bellevue, just outside of Seattle that we went up to visit with. And so we had coffee by the water almost every day, but um, she also likes to hike. So we went and hiked some trails around Bellevue. Uh, And then we actually went over to Mount St. Helens, did a little Bigfoot hunting, Mm -hmm. hiked some trails, saw the volcano, went up to Mount Rainier, and then went over to Olympic National Park. And I never fully appreciated how dense the forests are there. I'm used to Colorado, Arkansas. I mean, we don't really have forests in Oklahoma. We have some over in the eastern part of the state, but, you know, we're prairie land here. So I got a, it was eye opening for me because everything was wet. Everything was mossy and everything looked like Bigfoot. I also see that you like uh, your favorite dishes, uh, red beans over rice uh, by the campfire. Yeah, that's my signature dish at the campfire. So my husband is a great fire builder and I can cook anything over a fire he makes. Yeah. I mean, with my past guests from Oklahoma, it's like, you know, that's another thing that's on my bucket list. You know, uh, we don't have very many mountains where, where I'm at in the Northern part of Ohio, uh, but down Southern part of Ohio with the Appalachians, you know, very nice down there. And I love the, I love the, the wilderness and the, and the, uh, the hiking and the woods. And that, that's on my list to get to Oklahoma and a couple yeah. of spots that past guests have uh, mentioned to me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see you also work for KEBC Radio. I did. That was my first writing gig. I was actually, uh, my job was to review CDs and write up a review for their little magazine. Uh, it was called In Country Magazine. And I got to interview a lot of country music stars, sometimes in person, sometimes over the radio. That was back before podcasts mm-hmm. were popular. But uh, I got to interview um, Brooks and Dunn, Martina McBride, Neil McCoy, um, you know, pretty long list of, of country music stars, uh, probably about the mid, it's probably about the mid nineties. I got to do that. So that was really my first professional writing gig was to, to write up articles about the interviews and about their careers and, um, you know, reviews of the albums and things like that. So I got to, I got to go out and meet them and I got to kind of see backstage what that was like. And it was really interesting. I've always had a love for music. I'm, I was a music major in college. That was my first intention was I was going to get a degree in music and that kind of fell through. And so then life got in the way. And, um, but I, I was always a musician and, and now my son is a music major in college. So he's going to finish his degree next year um, at East Central University in, in music composition and, and music education. That blew my mind. When I came across you on the internet with your books and you know, your three years, mm-hmm. your series, your, uh, Veritas Codex series. So far, there are three books. The fourth book will be out after the first of the year. And I actually have 13 books finished. I finished one last night. Oh, wow. Okay. So I mean, there's, I there's plenty more to come. I see you have one in that series coming up next year, you know, a fourth yeah. one in that series. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the monks were more. I love this quote. Being a writer isn't something you chose. It chose you. 
Mm-hmm. It's very true. I started writing when I was really little. Um, I have always loved stories. My granddad used to be a storyteller and he would he would tell us yarns. I mean, that was the, the country term. He's like, well, come here, I'm going to tell you a yarn. And he had about a dozen of them and I never got tired of them. I listened to all of them. So, you know, I'd climb up in his lap and said, okay, granddad, tell me a yarn. So I always love stories. And I wrote my first book at six. I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember how it went, but I remember doing the little string binding and cardboard cover. And, you know, I was kind of artsy craftsy when I was little too. So I just remember having, having a love for books really early. Uh, my mother was a reader and we never wanted for a book. If we, if we went to the store and we saw something we wanted, we'd get it. It was never, never anything we were denied. So we always loved having books. And so I became a reader in the lap of my mother. And I, uh, I began writing, I really kind of started dabbling in some fan fiction. When I was in high school, I, you know, I had a three ring binder that I would write everything out longhand that was back before I had a typewriter or computer or anything like that. And uh, over the years, I just kind of started really honing my craft. Well, in the last five years, I, I realized I needed to either get serious or be done. One of my favorite quotes is a non-writing writer is a monster courting disaster. And I realized really quick, I better get serious because if I quit writing, you wouldn't be able to be around me. I'm happier when I'm writing. So uh, even though I had a full-time job, I had a family, I had a career, writing was always something I've done in the background. Um, So I started this series. I had a couple of finished manuscripts in my computer file before I started the Veritas Codex. And that was about 2009. And I was watching some travel adventure show, I don't know, in search of or um, Destination Truth or something like that one night. I'm, I'm watching all these shows and thinking, you know, they never find anything. Why can't they find something? And the thought occurred to me, well, you know, maybe they did find something, but it's a truth they can never tell. Mm-hmm. And that's really where the Veritas Codex started. I just thought, well, I'll write this for practice. I never intended for anybody to read it. I just thought this is my practice book to see if I can write a book, you know, if I really can get something out out of this genre. So I decided I'd start with my favorite monster, and that was Bigfoot. I lived in the Pacific Northwest when I was very little, um, maybe two or three. And I remember that was the first monster I ever heard about. So that was my monster growing up. Uh, So I decided that we would go on the hunt for Bigfoot and maybe we would find them. Maybe we wouldn't. And so that's really kind of where the Veritas Codex series started. Uh, after I finished the first book, and, and the, the premise of the book is about Dr. Lauren Grayson. She's a biological anthropologist, and she's just trying to make her career on a cable television show because it pays for her research. And she's very scientific, very scientific minded. And she's accompanied by a team of investigators. There's a couple of them that are really close in their circle. But her uh, number one partner is Rowan Pierce, and he's a former military medic. He's really more interested in her than in Bigfoot. Uh, And it's a relationship she's trying to keep under wraps because she doesn't want anybody to know about it. She thinks it'll affect her credibility. And so they go out on the hunt for Bigfoot. Uh, In the second book, which is the Jaguar Queen, their relationship has moved forward. You know, everybody knows and the Mayan apocalypse is coming. So it's 2012 and the network decides at the last minute, hey, we've got to get a show on this Mayan apocalypse things. We can't miss out on this. So they send them to do an episode on the Mayan apocalypse. And of course, everybody knows the world isn't going to end. I mean, obviously we're here, so it didn't. When they get down there, they get in the middle of international antiquities, kind of a black market, and there's a murder. And so they have to get in and solve the mystery, save the artifacts and survive getting through all of that because a life or death situation for them. Book three is The Alien Accord. And that one is really kind of a really personal story for Lauren because she's got a brother who's always been the thorn in her side. He's always said he's going to find aliens before she does. And he's always kind of mocked her about that. But he's a telescope engineer uh, working as a contractor for NASA. So he has a very real possibility of being able to do that. And in order for him to complete his assignment, uh, one of his co-workers has been murdered. Um, He needs her help. And they haven't spoken in 20 years. And so they have to come to terms with each other. And she's just not ready to make peace yet. And he's got to because he's got no other choice, because if he doesn't, he could be next. So that's the Alien Accord, and that's the first three books in the series. But I've seen on there was a you know paranormal thriller. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow! I, I got to ask what the paranormal part was, and you you brought up Bigfoot. Yep. But my question is, uh, being a three part series so far, because yeah, you mm-hmm. got book four coming up. 
do the characters transition to each book? Yes. They follow the same series characters and it's basically just a new episode for every book. So it's kind of good to read them in order. Uh, that way you don't miss any of the cliffhangers. Or And then we also put out something my publisher did this year is we put out a anthology of Christmas stories. And there is an episode of the Veritas Codex in this anthology. It's called uh, Christmas Tapestry, a collection of holiday tales. And there's an episode of the Veritas Codex where they are sent to Germany on the hunt for Krampus. So it has a holiday theme to it, but it still has the same paranormal uh, mystery theme to it that everything else has. And and the book contains a number of these stories um, by different authors in our publishing group, including uh, William Bernhardt, who writes legal thrillers, uh, Tamara Grantham, who writes fantasy, uh, Ken Andrus, who writes military thrillers, John Woolley, who writes horror. So none of them are really having anything in common other than the fact that they're all a holiday story. And it's all just kind of a great sampler of the things that we do at Babylon Publishing. You know, you mentioned Bigfoot. What led you to be fascinated with Bigfoot in the first place? You know, like I said, it was the first monster I remember really hearing anything about. And and I have traveled mostly in the United States. I've been in other countries, but mostly in the United States. We always went by car. We never traveled by airplanes or things like that. My grandfather worked in the oil field. My father was military. So, you know, we traveled all over the country. And so I spent a lot of time in the woods and a lot of times just kind of exploring on my own. And I always thought, you know, it would be really cool to find Bigfoot. And I watched shows like In Search Of and monster quest and things like that. So I've always loved the paranormal. Most people don't know Oklahoma has Bigfoot. Um, Mm -hmm. They actually passed a law in Oklahoma last year that allowed you to get your hunting license for Bigfoot. It's captive only, no shoot. (laughs) Um, They have to bring them in alive. And of course, nobody's done it yet. But I'm as a safety professional, I cringe every time I think about it because I'm just afraid somebody's going to get hurt. So um, it's always been something that's just kind of been out there. And I'd really like to know the answer is Bigfoot out there. And I think it's very vain of us to think that he's not. Paranormal being such a wide field. I mean, unexplained, mm-hmm. really. You can't explain it. I had a story a while back, you know, a friend of mine went to Alaska on one of these uh, fishing, hunting mm-hmm. trips. You know, you, they drop you off in a desolate, you know, area where there's no running water there you know everything you survive on your own for two weeks well his story to me was he came across baby bigfoot oh my i mean so while they're camping it was a little a little bigfoot well yeah i mean it's hard to explain you know because uh he didn't really tell anybody because mm-hmm. seeing bigfoot's one thing but when you see a little bigfoot mama bigfoot wasn't far behind mm-hmm. it was fascinating to me mm-hmm. uh ufos or ghost spirits so you have my 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 question was what led you into the right. uh, paranormal was it a, was it a at a young age oh yeah i was really young i mean 3 or 4 is probably when i really started getting interested in it and i've always been uh, fascinated in the whole science behind unknown creatures and creatures that we just haven't identified and i mean if you look back at the history of the great apes the gorilla was thought to be a myth until pro- probably in the late 30s or 40s when they ran across you know when when The civilized world uh, was exposed to um, some of those wild areas that they'd never been in, you know, kind of the gorillas in the mist story, uh, some of Diane Fossey's research and Jane Goodall. I've always loved shows like that, Nature, uh, Science, Nova, anything like that. So from an anthropological standpoint, you know, I want to know if there are other creatures out there that we have not identified. And after seeing the Pacific Northwest, there are places that people have not been And, you know, there's plenty of opportunity and you look at what, what do they need? They need a place to live. They need food. They need cover. They need protection and they need water. And there's everything that they need in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Alaska, I would see is the same way. There are parts of Oklahoma that are very rural. We have a lot of swamp land. People don't realize we have swamps, we have mountains and we have a volcano in Oklahoma. Uh, It's extinct. Thank goodness. Um, because we consider ourselves an all-hazard state. Um, we've had earthquakes. The largest one we've had is a 5.6. Tornado Alley, you know, is basically our front porch. We've had terrorist attacks. We've got oil and gas reserves that are, you know, running through our state. So, you know, there's all kinds of potential for a creature like that to live in an area where mankind will never see it. 
Uh, and occasionally there are places where they cross into our territory, I guess you could say, or we cross into theirs, however you want to look at it. So, you know, I think that's where we're seeing so many sightings. And, and if you pull up maps of, of Bigfoot sightings across the country, Oklahoma has quite a few of them. Yeah, I, I could just tell by some of my guests that's been on, you know, I mean, Oklahoma's active. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, not just in the ghosts and spirits, yeah, like you said, uh, Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And I see you have a, a Bigfoot symposium coming up on March 12th and 13th of next year. Yeah, I'm, I scheduled it. It's kind of a, it's more than just Bigfoot. It's a pretty big paranormal event. There's, you know, all kinds of vendors and dealers and I'll have a table there. I'll have books available, sign autographs, things like that. Um, but there'll be speakers talking about all aspects of the paranormal, not just Bigfoot, but I'm sure that's going to be a big part of our discussion. And where's that located? Uh, that one's going to be in Perry, Oklahoma. Yeah, we did that one last year and we'll do it again next year. Uh, we also have a large Bigfoot uh, festival in Hanobia, which is in southeastern Oklahoma. It's usually around October, uh, usually the second weekend in October. And for some reason, I end up on the wrong side of the planet every day, <laughs> every year that that comes around. I was in uh, Pacific Northwest this year. Uh, last year, it didn't get held because of COVID. And of course, I'm sitting around going, OK, how am I going to promote my book? <laughs> I was ready to go, but it got canceled. So uh, I am hoping, you know, I'm trying to watch my schedule and make sure I I keep that open so that I can make those kinds of events because I really do like to go out and I really like to talk to other people who are interested in it, talk to experts. You know, I'm still learning every day, so I'm always looking for those opportunities to pick up a lesson. I had a guest on uh, from Minnesota a couple of years ago, and you're the Bigfoot uh, investigator. He he hit me with a question that I'll, I'll ask you. Do you think that Bigfoot and UFOs are connected? Well, if you read the book, you'll find I have a connection in there. <laughs> okay. um, so I, I would kind of lean towards the, yeah, I think there's a possibility. So I, I didn't think about that when he asked me, you know, but that one hit me like, uh, I really didn't think about it because he said, if you think about it, you know, uh, these UFO mm-hmm. sightings are usually sighted over the body's water mm-hmm. where Bigfoot is usually spotted in the woods off right. that water. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I really had to really think about that one think who's to say they're not yeah and i think the reason why we don't typically see bigfoot and ufos together is we're not typically in the same areas the bigfoot's in so you know maybe they can see things we can't see so you know there's a potential for contact oh exactly i also see that you're a proud member of the red sneakers writers the central oklahoma writers guild and the international thriller writers congratulations (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I started with the Red Sneaker Writers. And, and when I really started getting serious about my writing career, I went to a writer's conference when I was a, a college student. It was held at our college and um, they had the writer's conference. And I was really, really just it was more than I could absorb in three days because, I mean, I walked out of there with 28 pages of notes. I'm a copious note taker and I type super fast. So I take all my notes with my iPad or my laptop. I mean, I left just energized. I I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And so I started going to that conference and eventually evolved into the Red Sneaker Writers Conference. And now it's called WriterCon. And I went to it. This is my fifth year I went to it. Um, So in 2019, I'm sitting at WriterCon. I've got uh, I've got a couple manuscripts I'm getting ready to go pitch to uh, an editor. And I had written in my notes and I remember this very clearly. I don't know why I wrote it. I just did. Within the next year, I'm going to do one thing that's going to get me invited to be a speaker at WriterCon 2020. Of course, this is before the pandemic hits. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's a lofty goal anyway, but I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do this one thing. So I go in and I pitch one of my manuscripts, which was a piece of women's fiction. And the agent's like, you know what? I'm really interested in that. That sounds kind of like a book I've written. Can you send me the first 10 pages? And that's usually what they ask for at those conferences. So I I, I went back to the house and I put the email together. You know, she sent me a link and all this kind of stuff. And I had to get my daughter to hit the button. I was just terrified. I just couldn't bring it myself to do it. So my my, my teenage daughter is, is one of my biggest champions. So she came and she's like, mom, let me hit the button. I'll do it. So I let her. And so it got sent off. And within a couple of weeks, I had a request for the full manuscript, which is huge. You know, yeah. just to get a request for a full was a big deal back then for me because I'd never had that before. And so I sent it and, and six, seven, eight weeks went by and it was around the holidays and they get busy and then they, they kind of take off for the holidays. And so after, after the new year, I got an email going, you know, I really like it, but I just don't think it's the right project for me. Um, here are some pointers that I think could help you make it a better book, which I'm always up for. So I was very grateful for that. 
And even though it was a no, it was a huge step in my career, in my writing career. And while I was at WriterCon, they announced that they were going to do the first ever WriterCon cruise, which was basically an intensive workshop at sea uh, on a cruise ship uh, going down to Honduras and Mexico. And so we would do classes during the day. We would do our excursions and fun stuff at night. You know, not, not every day did we do classes, but we, we always had something going on. So we were either doing an activity or we were, or we were workshopping our book. And I decided that we, I wanted to go. So I went to my husband and I said, you know what? I think if I'm going to take my career to the next level, I need this workshop. And of course, my husband's always up for adventure. So he's <laughs> like, okay, let's go. How much does it cost? And I told him, he goes, we got that. No big deal. Let's go. I couldn't believe it. I thought I was going to get some kickback or, oh, well, we'll need to save up for that. He's like, sign up, just do it. He said, I want you to, I want you to succeed and I want your career to take off. Let's go. So we went and uh, we left uh, in February of 2020 and got back on February the 10th on February the 13th. (laughs) That's when uh, COVID kind of hit here Uh, by the 17th, my workplace had to close down because um, it was considered an educational center and it was a, you know, we didn't want to bring people in and have them be exposed to COVID. So we, we shut down for almost a month. So we were trying to find other ways to train people. We just signed up for this new thing called Zoom, which I think we're all now pros at. Yeah. <laughs> so I started teaching classes online and, and through Zoom and doing webinars and uh, providing resources for businesses to help them get through those times. And so when we got back from the cruise, I had an email from the publisher that had helped put on the event. And he said, you know, I, I listened to you workshop your book and I listened to your pitch. And I, I really, I've been kind of looking for a series to promote with my new publishing company. And uh, he says, I think Bigfoot is a lot more interesting than some of the pixies and fairy stories that I've heard. I found some that I like, but, but I really like your, your Bigfoot story. And he said, I'd, I'd really like for you to consider publishing with our, with our press. If you're interested, you know, we can help you get your career started and it was very favorable to me. And I got the contract. I sent it off to my attorney. My attorney was like, this is terrific. We're going to make a few changes, but this is an awesome opportunity and you need to jump on it. And so I did. And in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I got my first book published. It came out in September. Um, so when my grandchildren, my great grandchildren asked me, Grandma, what did you do during the pandemic? I'm like, well, that's when I got my first book published yeah. you know, 30 years ago. And I got 30 of them. And, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So uh, that's kind of how I got started with actually getting books published because I was just kind of scared and afraid to really get myself out there. And um, once I got out of my own way, then I just took, I've taken off like a rocket and it's just been fantastic. So, you know, finding the courage to get past your fears can be, can be huge. Yeah. Are you self-publishing or is this traditional publishing? I'm actually through a small local press. It's called Babylon Books and it's uh it's relatively new. It's only been around for a couple of years. I think I was one of the first authors that they signed. They have a few others, but I think we're up to seven or eight now authors that publish through Babylon Books. And it's been a huge opportunity. And one of the things that was really important to me was that not only did I have ebooks and paperbacks, but I also wanted to have an audio book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have some friends that have reading disabilities and visual acuity problems, and I, I knew it was important for them to be able to get audiobooks, so I wanted to be able to do that. And that was something that my publisher was able to arrange for. So the books are available in audiobook, both in ebook and then in paperback. The uh, complete series? Yep. Oh, awesome. You know, I'm writing my, my, my first book myself, because it was based off of uh, true uh, hauntings in a house I grew up in. So it's only taking, taking me 55 years to write the book, but you're never too old. You're never too young. Yeah. I'm, I'm just checking the waters now to see how to, how to go about that. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've written songs before and had poetry published, you know, mm-hmm. and this is my first novel. Um, it's, it's, it's going to be a three-part series as well awesome. uh, of, the, of the time that we grew up in the house in, in a four years. And I was 12 years old at the time when, when we moved in. And I see that all the time on this podcast, you know, no matter what you're writing about, well, that didn't happen. But, you know, that's just something I had to do. Yeah, that's one of the things you really have to put yourself out there when you're writing. And, and you know, when you write about something that's that seems so fantastical as Bigfoot or ghosts or things like that, there's always that fear that people are going to think you're crazy. And that was, well, yeah. that was something I was afraid <laughs> of, too. But um, there was a, there's a study that comes out every year that looks at the paranormal and how it does in fiction, you know, TV, movies, 
And the, the number of people who believe in paranormal is actually probably a lot higher than you think it is. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it, I did a, a presentation at WriterCon because I achieved my goal mm-hmm. at WriterCon 2020. We talked about the success of the paranormal genre. And as an author, uh, right now, it is huge. I mean, it is really taking off. There's a lot of competition in, in suspense, thrillers. Uh, sometimes vampire books are considered paranormal, uh, anything about ghosts, anything about Bigfoot, anything about aliens, any kind of ESP, you know, there's, there's a huge genre, you know, I haven't even touched on, you know, the Loch Ness monster or, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So there's still lots of investigations, lots of mysteries for the, the team to go out and investigate. There's just no, there's no end to where that is, but I promise you, whatever you're into, there's a market for it. And there are other people out there that you can connect with. And, and I mean, just us talking is, is proof of that. I started out promoting the book, uh, the book series when they first came out. I, you know, I did Facebook and I did Twitter, but my teenage daughter said, mom, you got to get on Instagram. That's where the cool kids are. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, you're going to have to show me how to do that. Cause I didn't even know how to get started on Instagram. So she got me going. Uh, she's a fantastic photographer and a great artist. And she did some things for me to kind of help me get started. So I just kind of took it and ran with it. And I found that there is a paranormal community on Instagram that is just above compare. They're just, they've been fantastic. And I mean, my book hadn't even been out. I mean, it hadn't even been out yet. It was on pre-order when the first paranormal podcast reached out to me and said, Hey, we see you've got a new book coming out. Can we visit? And he's like, I'm really interested in the book. And so I did my first podcast interview before my book even came out. It's amazing to see how many wonderful people there are out there who who follow this and who think like I think and who just want to know more about the world that we live in. Promote yourself. You have to, uh, you know, and set your goals. You know, I Mm -hmm. just said a couple of times, you know, you've got these goals you're setting. And that's that's Mm -hmm. awesome because, you know, you have something you're shooting for. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, when I started out in the podcasting, you know, I had maybe... 30, 30, uh, downloads in three months. I'm like, well, that's, this isn't going good. You know, I just keep doing it, you know, and mm-hmm. now I got over 40,000 downloads and uh, it's growing. And I keep, my big thing is the people I get to talk to like yourself, yeah. you know, yeah. where you came from and, and what you're writing and, mm-hmm. uh, what your paranormal, uh, interests are. Yeah. Yeah. My publisher's motto is you cannot fail if you refuse to quit. I'll be right back with the rest of my conversation with Betsy. Kulakowski, right after these brief messages. The Mother Daughter Ish podcast and YouTube TV show is all about the conversations that mothers and daughters have, the conversations they don't like to have, and the conversations that just have to be discussed. Join us on all podcasting platforms. Watch our show on YouTube. Hey, guess what? It's your mama's favorite podcast and the podcast your daughter is so glad she found. Check out the Mother Daughter Ish podcast and youtube tv show with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, Getting back to your daughter, you said your daughter was one of your biggest advocates. Mm Do you think that they're going to get into writing as well? I don't think that she's really going to be into writing. She's my artist. She likes to paint and draw and she's a fantastic artist. So that's where her vision lies. Occasionally she'll come to me and she'll say, Oh mom, I have a great idea for a story. You need to write this. And I'll let her pitch it to me. I'm like, yeah, that is a great story, but you know what? That's not my story. That's your Mm -hmm. story. And so I'm trying, trying to encourage her, you know, write at least jot down the idea. Even if you don't do anything with it right now, if you come back to it in a year and it's still a good idea, then maybe you need to write it. You know, that's not something I can do. I, I can't see your vision. 
So you're going to have to make that happen. So I, I'm trying to encourage her, but but she really does love to paint and to draw, and you know, she's got potential as a tattoo artist, if nothing else. So uh, I encourage that as well. When you started writing, I'm not naturally mm-hmm. you you used a pencil and a paper, or you were uh-huh. saying how you did your soft binding on your first book. Yep. You like writing with the pen to the paper, mm-hmm. with your fingers to the keyboard, typewriter, or the computer. Yeah. I, I am totally the computer girl. I uh, I had a brother like Michael, like Lauren's brother, who was always trying to one up me at everything. And he was the, always the kid that was in trouble. And I ended up having the same typing teacher in high school that he had. This was back before we had computers. So I'm dating myself. But but she taught typing and, and I walked into her class and she looked at me and saw my name and she goes, well, you'll never pass my class. Don't tell me what I can't do. I will prove you wrong every time. And I now type 145 words a minute. So oh. I like to do it on the computer because I am efficient and I can keep up with my brain. I was going to say, you know, because when you come up with these ideas and these characters for your book, you know, mm-hmm. do you jot it down like at two o'clock in the morning? Sometimes, yeah. If I if I dream a scene or I wake up and I'm, you know, sometimes my characters don't let me sleep. They they come up behind me while I'm walking, or you know, I'll I'll make a note in my phone, or I'll make a note on. I keep a notepad by the bed. I, you know, I've got one right here in front of me. I've always got a notepad handy. There actually, there's two of them on my desk right now. So I'll, you know, I'll jot down notes. Sticky notes are stuck to my closet door. You know, sometimes I'll plot out a scene on sticky notes. So yeah, I'm always jotting down those ideas, but. But I have gotten to know these characters. Like I said, I wrote the first book in 2009. Um, So I've had plenty of time to really get to know these characters. I know their heart. I know their soul. I know what they want. I know what they're afraid of. I know the things they don't want other people to know. And uh, I know what the end game is because I've already written it. That book is done. So I kind of know where things are going. You know, things change along the way and that's okay. I'm flexible enough that I can make that work. But yeah, I I try to get it down as quickly as I can. And when I'm on a roll, man, leave me alone. Let me write. Which, you know, sometimes you can't do that when you have a full-time job, a family, you know, your son's in college in another town and you've got, you know, a teenager still at home. So um, fortunately, my husband's really supportive. He, he likes to watch movies and play video games, and he's perfectly content to leave me alone and let, him, let me write in the evenings after, after dinner's done and the dishes are washed. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you know, because my wife thinks I'm crazy printing out my, my manuscript, you know, find it better if I, if I just look at it while I mm-hmm. play the audio back of the manuscript and I'll listen yep. to it looking at it and I was like, oh man, I, I have a bad habit because I'm writing the book as, as myself as a 12 year old, even though yeah. some of the names have changed, but I'm, I have a problem going first person, third person, you know, yeah. is or was. So, you know, <laughs> so yeah. Yep. I print all mine out. And uh, fortunately my college professor, I got to be really good friends with him because it turned out he was a writer too. And we wrote things that were similar. So we meet at least once a week for coffee and uh, I'll bring what I have and he'll bring what he has. And we'll just take turns reading it back and forth to each other. And we we're listening to each other and catching those, you know, those common phrases that we use that those sticky words that we just mm-hmm. can't seem to get away from. Uh, he catches my comma before every uh, also or two and, you know, I'll catch all his little typos and we actually can hear the story play out and then we can feed off of each other. And so having somebody that you can do that with is important. And, and I, I use different editing techniques because I write so fast. Um, I try not to edit while I'm writing because I just want to get the story out. I just want to spill my guts onto the page. I'll go back in and do the cleanup later. So I do that with him. And then I will put up my book um, in a PDF and let the computer read it to me. I also use an AI program to go through and analyze my book. There's a a website called author AI Mm -hmm. and it'll run through and do an analysis of your book and look for those sticky words and look for your tempo beats and, and, you know, the strong points and the characters. And um, it just gives you a lot of feedback that you can use to make your book better. And then my editor, my publisher gets it and reviews it. And then the editor gets it. And then a second editor gets it. And then it comes back to me and, you know, it's, it's one of those games when we're in the editing phase, which we're getting ready to start for book four. So I use every technique at my, at my beck and call to try to make the book better. And, and, you know, the first book, you learn a lot of lessons. You learn, you know, where your weaknesses are. Um, by the third book, I was excited. I found one typo when I got done with it, when it got published. It's like, okay, not tragic for your book to get out with a typo. It's only tragic if you leave it that way. So, you know, I, I intend to go back and re-edit some of the other, the older books at some point, but, you know, all lessons learned and all things that, that help make you a better writer. I did watch your promo on, on YouTube on the, uh, the Alien Accord 
promo. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that was that, that was great. You did a good job on that. Uh, actually, my publisher's son did that. He's really? a, a college student who's in journalism and communications, and he has done all the videos for us, and he is terrific. Yeah, because I have um, my own uh, video production company for like 20 years. I look at stuff like that, you know, and the filming and the uh, presentation. I thought it was great. I thought yeah. I did a good good job on that little piece. Yeah, you know. that is not a skill set I have. I can't even figure out how to make a TikTok video. <laughs> Well, yeah, because I'm showing my age too, because I'm still doing vinyl and I have a jukebox. Of, oh, that's all good stuff, though. You know, but uh, yeah, so I'm I'm still learning myself. Yeah, let me know when you get to that point. We'll talk. I'll give you some pointers. Oh, thank you. Things I've learned along the way. Well, my Halloween special was uh, on uh, a vampire crypt in uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pennsylvania, and I'll tell you, what, I got the chills on that one. About an hour drive from where I live, and that was fascinating. You know, you go in these old cemeteries, and I did some research on it, and I mean, not just a vampire crypt that's in there right now, but some of these graves, if they said the cemetery was founded in 18, on 1850, public cemetery, some of these graves were where they died in 1835. Mm-hmm. How did they get there? How, how did that? Probably started as a family cemetery and then it became public. After talking to the people at the cemetery, it was actually a lot of these churches have, you know, grave sites, great. They call it graveyards on the, in the mm-hmm. churches. And uh, when the church either crumbled or moved on or, you know, these people didn't, they just, the bodies are just there. So, so they'll move the body to a public cemetery yeah. or even uh, the, a grave on the hill in a family plot and they move it to the cemetery. So a lot of these uh, bodies were moved there. And uh, a lot of the stories I'm getting from some of these cemeteries across the nation are the ones that were moved mm-hmm. or, you know, disturbed. Very much so, and I know that the uh, the activity in the cemeteries are is is, that, is very active. You know, yeah. One of the most interesting cemeteries we have here in Oklahoma is at Fort Reno, which was an old Indian fort back in you know the 1890s to the early 1900s, and it was also a German POW camp. And under the Geneva Convention, the POWs cannot be buried in the same cemetery or graveyard as the enemy. So there is a wall between the two cemeteries. And there is a German POW burial ground uh, right next to the cemetery. Um, but they complied with the Geneva Convention when they when they built it. And so um, they do an annual event, but they do tombstone tales. And they will actually have an actor portray the person that's buried in the graveyard. And some of them are female. Some of them are children. Some of them are the POWs. And we went out to that one year. And the gentleman who was doing one of the characters was one of our legislators. And he was so convincing that I was literally sobbing because the story was so profound and so sad and so tragic. And he finally had to turn where he couldn't see me because he was starting to, to, to get emotional. And so, you know, I had to apologize afterwards because I really, I really got into it. He was doing such a great job telling his story. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also do uh, a monthly ghost hunt out there. They used to be able to go into the buildings, but some of them are in such poor repair and there's asbestos and other hazards that they don't let you go in. But some of the paranormal teams go out and lead the investigation. My mother was a historical volunteer out there. She did a lot of research for the, for the site and, you know, trying to corroborate some of the stories that were being told. Uh, about some of the ghosts and some of the sightings that people were having. And so we would just kind of go and make sure people stayed with the group. You know, we were kind of the tour guide, you know, move along, move along. Um, But there's an old Victorian house out there that a soldier had um, built for his, actually the, the soldiers or the soldier and his wife came out and his wife's father did not want his wife, his daughter living in squalor at a military camp in the middle of Indian territory. So he sent all the materials to build her a proper Victorian house. So it's a big three-story, you know, gigantic house. And we've had a couple of very interesting experiences in there. We actually were able to go in one night, uh, went into the attic and we were doing EVP sessions and I could actually feel, you know, something touching my leg. And, you know, I'm looking for spiders and things like that. And there's, you know, there's not, there's not in there. But the children were known to run through there and play. That was kind of their little play area. So we did a lot of um, sessions where we'd put out toys and invite them to come and play with the toys or play with the lights on the meters. And I got some really interesting things happened there. And so one night we were out, uh, my mother and I were walking around the building. And as we came around the north side of the building, the third story window actually fell out of the frame and landed just inches in front of her. It almost hit her. Mm. Um, I don't think it liked us being there. (laughs) 
not really sure what was going on. They let you know. Yeah, Yeah, they do. They let you know. Um, But then a couple of months later, we were out there and I had gone around the building during daylight hours and taken pictures in all the windows because they were doing construction. I just kind of wanted to have my baseline because, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist. I want the baseline. And then when we were walking around with a group at night, I started taking pictures in the window and I stopped with my digital camera and I went, hmm, that's interesting. And of course, everybody comes over and they're looking over my shoulder and there is very clearly a face in the window with his hand up like that, like he's looking to see who's looking in. Uh, And I got three or four snaps of that. And then the next picture I took, it wasn't there anymore. Uh, I had, you know, looked to make sure the windows were clean, that there wasn't any distortion in the glass. You know, I had all those baseline pictures I could go back and compare to. And so I actually, you know, I feel like that's probably some of the best evidence I've ever been able to collect as a paranormal investigator to the point that the Travel Channel saw it in some kind of a fan thing on my Facebook or Instagram and wanted to use it in one of their episodes of, of Ghost Adventures. And so I, I never did see the episode if they did it, but I, I did sign the paperwork for it. So they have rights to use that picture. You know, that's really kind of where I first got a taste of what a paranormal investigation looked like. That was really kind of before any of the shows were really uh-huh. popular, before any that I'd really seen. So some of the teams would go out there and they, you know, they're always so gracious and so kind. And so I did meet a few of them, but I've never really fallen in with the group. I'd, I'd like to spend time doing more of those, but you know, I'd rather write books. Yeah, and you know, it's how things have changed so much between now. Of course, everything has changed, you know, to the better as far as your investigations go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, I would say 75% of the time, you know, I didn't get anything. Yeah. Because you're there to, to debunk the mm-hmm. sighting somebody calls you on in the first place. Right. Uh, most of the time it is uh, not. I want to thank you for being on the show tonight and sharing your, uh, your and I'm going to put all your look, links in the bottom of this episode. Where they, right. can, where they can they can get your book and mm-hmm. get a hold of you. And uh, it's been my pleasure having you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Betsy, for being on the show today, sharing your paranormal stories, your books, your career, being a federally trained investigator. I look forward to talking to Betsy again in the future. And you can find all of Betsy Kulikowski's links at the bottom of this episode. I'm your host, Al Cooley. I will be back in two weeks with another great episode on Ghosts in the Valley podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.